Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today I am so excited. Hope is an enormous inspiration to me as she is not only a multi-award winning mental health campaigner but also a public speaker and published author. Hope has previously published the inspiring Stand Tall Little Girl regarding her journey with her friend Anorexia and how she found strength to recover. Hope has also written a guide to recovery with the support of Dr Chichi Abaya which will be released in April. Hope is leading several eating disorder campaigns, including Dump the Scales, Curb the Count, and Let's Talk EDs. Hope is joining us today to discuss the hard work she is putting in at the moment through campaigns. She also holds webinars for schools, universities, and so many other things in order to increase awareness and education, all what we're about on Full of Beans. Hello, Hope. Hi, thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming on. It's really exciting. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm a bit sick of lockdown now, but I'm hoping that it, we're easing out of it gently. Yeah, no, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gone on for far too long, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it has. And I feel like we have got an end in sight now, though, which is really good. Yeah, I think having that date, even if that date isn't the date that it all ends, I think just knowing that it's in sight is really comforting. Yeah, definitely. So the first thing I wanted to talk about today was your Dump the Scales campaign. The campaign itself is about increasing awareness and education that weight should not be used to determine an eating disorder. We know that so many people that have eating disorders are not actually underweight. And so I just wondered if you could explain your personal experience as to why you started the campaign. Yeah, so... I relapsed back in 2016 and this was kind of following, I'd spent a year in treatment when I was 17 um, and kind of eight years later developed, um, was relapsing quite a bit, predominantly due to a grief in my family that I was really struggling to kind of get my head around. Um, I felt very guilty about the whole thing. I was trying to be like really strong for everybody else and I wasn't really giving myself the chance to have my needs really met. and it it did kind of happen quite slowly, mm. but I just remember the eating disorder trying to kind of creep back up on me a little bit and kind of went on for a couple of months. And eventually I went to the GP and got a referral to the eating disorder service. So I live in southwest London mm. and I managed to get an appointment pretty quickly, actually, surprisingly. <laughs> so that was like a really, like a really amazing relief. And I was so like, this is going to be fine. Like, I got my mum to come with me, even though I was in my 20s at that point. I was like, do you know what I really need? I need someone there with me Mm. um, just to kind of hold me to account and to help just alleviate some of that guilt. And I remember kind of going into this appointment and I was really nervous in the run up to it. I think I felt 
I felt like I'd kind of regressed like back kind of like eight, eight, nine years when I was first sitting in a treatment like center. But I went into the appointment and was really, really honest and went through like my history. I talked about what was going on in my head. I talked about the death that happened in my family. And I pretty much ticked every single box to access treatment apart from the weight box. And I remember like they looked at me, they weighed me and they were like, you're not underweight. And I just was sitting there and I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, and I said to the woman, I remember saying to her, I know I'm not underweight, but I really want some help. I was like, all I want is like six, seven weeks of therapy, a bit of space to just kind of get myself back on track. And she was like, I'm really sorry. There's nothing we can do for you. What we can do instead is we can give you, we'll write you a letter to your GP. You can go on antidepressants and then you can look at joining, signing up to IAPT, which is an outpatient service. So I was like, okay, like didn't really know what to do. And I remember like I left the appointment with my mum and we went and had um, a coffee afterwards and we were both a bit like, I don't know what to do. And my mum was like to me, I think you should go on medication because it will give you something to just like try and help a little bit. But I was like vehemently against medication, like at that point and was really nervous about going on it. So I was like, I don't want to, I, I just have to work this out on my own. Mm. So I had like this four week period where things just got really, really difficult. Um, I felt really suicidal a lot of the time. I was kind of constantly kind of competing with things in my head, like trying to navigate situations. And it all, it all just got too much for me. So I ended up going back to my doctor and did go on medication for the next four years right. and actually only came off it this time last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I did I did also sign up to IAPT and got offered kind of three months later, like eight sessions of CBT, which I did three sessions and it just didn't work for me. It wasn't it wasn't CBT specifically for eating disorders. It was a very generic service and I yeah, it just it just didn't help. So I think, yeah, I kind of I guess in one sense I was very lucky because I had been in treatment before. I'd been like had some really, really good treatment, I'd had some really good therapy and I went back a lot to those basics with the meal planning, with kind of having people that I was accountable to, all of that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. But it it was hard. And I think my frustration particularly, I know this wasn't exactly your question, but um, <laughs> I think like what I realized was the more I talked about it, the more people are being affected by this sort of treatment. And yeah. I'm lucky because I do have a support network around me. And like I said, I've been in treatment, I've learned what works and what doesn't work for me. But at the same time, there are so many people out there who haven't ever had that chance of treatment. And people who maybe don't have the same support network around them. Yeah. And in those situations, I'm just like, they, they need to have that support. Like they need to get, they need that chance. And yeah, I, I just think even that whole competitive nature of having an eating disorder, like everything, when you go to the GP or the or a clinician and they tell you you're not underweight enough, you're set up to fail at that point. And yeah. it takes every ounce to kind of push yourself to get to that space to do that to then be told that is just really, really disheartening. I think often people feel like when they get the comments that you don't weigh low enough, it's basically saying to you, well done, you failed. You know, we have these three diagnostic criteria, which are valid, but if patients are sat there saying, I am obsessed with the food that I'm eating, I'm obsessed with exercising, I see my body in a different light to what other people may be seeing, I but then I don't have a significantly low weight, you're not going to take me as seriously. That just shows the lack of education because 
we've obviously built up this idea of what an eating disorder looks like. And obviously atypical anorexia is more difficult to understand than anorexia because of that ideal. But then when you start throwing in eating disorders like bulimia, binge eating disorder, R-fed and OSFED, then they're completely different kettles of fish. So understanding where patients are then coming from with those eating disorders when we've already got this perception of what an eating disorder is, it's really, really damaging. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, it's so wrong. Like anorexia, bulimia, like binge eating disorder, maybe not even that, maybe just anorexia and bulimia. They're not, they're not the pinnacle illnesses to have. No. Like it's an eating disorder. And mm. I think it's so sad when... I do think it's really sad when you hear people who've had other diagnoses who don't feel like they're good enough to have an eating disorder. Like, yeah, it's it's just really frustrating. And I think it is, it's back to, we seem to have put eating disorders on a certain level. And yes, anorexia might have the highest mortality rate, but actually the, it's only, I think only 8% of people actually have anorexia yeah. out of the 1.6 million who are currently diagnosed. Mm. So it's a tiny, tiny percentage, but yet all of our focus seems to go onto that and not onto other eating disorders, mm. which with the competition behind it, obviously just makes it really, really difficult. And why do you think that is? Do you think it's because there is no one look, but I suppose if somebody is struggling with anorexia, they do appear at a low weight, so it is something visual that maybe people can see? Do you think that the reason we, you know, have that in our mind as a society that that is an eating disorder is because it's something people can actually visualise as opposed to other eating disorders that tend to occur more internally that maybe people can't understand? Yeah, I think I think it is that. I think it is we can't understand fully. We just can't, yeah, we can't understand it fully why, why someone doesn't look like they might kind of stereotypically fit that mould of an eating disorder that we see on the TV or we see in the news and I think that's something that comes up a lot isn't it like whenever the media report on eating disorders they will always report on someone with anorexia mm. and they will make sure they have a photo of that person looking severely underweight mm. when more often than not that's triggering but also completely inaccurate for the majority of the country on actually how that's portrayed yeah. and I think again like we don't we don't do ourselves a service when we talk about it I guess as well like we don't we don't take the time to maybe fully understand. And I know in my family, like I, when I was unwell, everyone could see that something was the matter. Mm. But as soon as you start kind of eating again, it's then so much harder to explain that something is physically, is something is mentally wrong when physically you might be eating and physically you do look okay. And it was interesting, actually, we were talking, I was thinking about it recently with um, my other half, like, and trying to get, we were talking about like some friends that we know who don't really fully understand what it's like to have anorexia. And we were talking about how quite often with eating disorders, because it's a food, food related issue, people think that it's a choice that you're choosing to be this certain way, but actually it, it's not that at all. And I guess for me, that's, that's another thing that's then fueling that kind of whole inaccurate picture we have of it, that we think if someone's in recovery and they're eating, that somehow everything's totally okay, but you don't realise the day in, day out kind of turmoil that a lot of people will be facing. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, and that's why I think that your campaigning is so important, because it's that education to people of what actually happens when you have an eating disorder and kind of debunking those stigmas. And so could you just explain to us what the Dump the Scales campaign does? 
Yeah, no. So Dump the Scales is all around making sure that people with eating disorders get the support they need. So whether that's kind of access to treatment, whether that's inpatient or outpatient treatment. At the moment, so often with eating disorders, people will present with an eating disorder to their doctor or to a clinician. And because of a lack of funding, a lack of education, a lack of understanding, unless the person sits kind of nicely into um, a low BMI, there is often very little support available for them, which means for people with eating disorders, it can be really triggering. Mm -hmm. They can kind of go into this spiral of trying to prove that they deserve to get that support. And already for them, they've reached out for that support and they've taken that really, really important step forward. But then they kind of get faced with being turned away and it's, it's just not right. So yeah, I've been kind of campaigning on it for a couple of years now and it's made it has made huge amounts of progress. I think at the beginning of the campaign, the government didn't even talk about eating disorders um, and now they do. So that's kind of oh, one wow. positive. But then it is taking a long time for them to see that actually it's something that needs to be tackled as a matter of urgency, which at the moment feels quite frustrating given the rise in people kind of struggling with eating disorders and struggling kind of with disordered eating over the last year. Do you think that the lockdown has contributed to that rise? Yeah, I think it's definitely had an impact. I think there's been a number of things that have probably led to the impact. And from like things on social media around exercise, from the government's obesity strategy, from kind of that fear and uncertainty and isolation. Mm. But I also don't necessarily think it's just because of the pandemic. I think before the pandemic hit, there are probably a lot of people who were functioning at a high level with an eating disorder. And the pandemic maybe just kind of I guess flipped them over into that full-on eating disorder behavior and I think because people have been home a lot more it's probably been a bit easier for kind of families and loved ones to actually pick up again on those behaviors so yeah I think it, it definitely has had an impact but I don't know whether categorically I would say that it's caused more eating disorders if that mm. makes sense. No yeah definitely I think you're right I think definitely being at home more people being around each other more you become more aware of behaviors and I suppose if if you're not together a lot in day-to-day -day life you might not recognize it something else I was thinking I know that recently over the past few years eating disorders are spoken about a lot more so do you think maybe kind of the work you're doing and a lot of other people that are campaigning for eating disorders by having more conversations do you think that's making people like giving them the confidence to speak out and think yeah maybe I do have a problem whereas before they maybe thought it was normal yeah, I, I think so, definitely. I think that we live in a society where there's such a normalisation of disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And because more people are kind of picking that apart a little bit, I think it definitely helps people to reevaluate what their relationship with food is like. And I think it's I think that's the frustrating thing at the moment is there's a lot of awareness out there. But there's just not much kind of concrete action to really make those changes happen. So it's amazing that more people are reaching out for that support. But it's kind of like, well, what do they do when they get to that point? Yeah, definitely. Is that what you're working towards, you know, trying to actually, rather than just saying this is what an eating disorder is, putting things into place as well that will eventually end up helping patients? Yeah, I hope so. It's, yeah, I guess in a way it's a bit of a slow burner in places. I'm one of those people that's very kind of like wants the change to happen now. But I'm hopeful that things will start to change. It will just, I think it's just going to take a bit of time. And I think like the awareness stuff is really important and we always need that first. Mm -hmm. But it's then like, what can we do after that? And how can we make sure that when people need that support, they're able to really access it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I think that awareness is so important. And the more that people talk up and talk about eating disorders, then I think the more it becomes, okay, a lot of people are talking about this now. Maybe we do actually need to do something about this. Yeah. Um, that's what the government is, isn't it? It's catering to the majority rather than the minority. So the more people speak about it, the more hopefully it will, implementations will start to occur. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think whenever I like do sessions and whatnot with students particularly I'm always Mm. like go to your doctor like yes you will probably get turned away but actually just by going to the doctor it helps to get a bit more of the stats around it to actually make sure like like you said like the government can then look at those statistics and be like actually there's x amount of people who have an eating disorder presenting this is now what needs to happen yeah definitely and in just in terms of if people do go to the doctor you know I think I've heard a lot of stories where people will go to the doctor and they will be turned away and I think often a lot of people then it's a really vicious cycle because people then think okay well I need to make myself more poorly so that I get the kind of recognition so what sort of advice would you give to people if they do go to the doctor and they don't get the right treatment what what can they do instead so I think always ask what interim support is available Mm -hmm. and in some cases there will be interim support available and for some people that might be proper kind of face-to-face stuff for other people it might be a monthly check-in with their GP and I think being bold and asking for that is very very scary but really really important I also think there's things that you can do in the interim and for me it's like it was kind of getting when I relapsed and wasn't able to get support back in 2016 I wrote myself a meal plan so I kind of stuck religiously to that meal plan every single day Mm. going back to the basics of kind of like what my initial treatment had been like also having people around you that you can be accountable to so having people that can check in with you people who can ask like whether you're having enough to eat whether you're exercising too much all of that sort of stuff Mm. um and I think also just realizing that a lot of the time when you're pushing back on it that discomfort will be really really strong Mm. and I never want to dismiss the discomfort that people feel when they're in recovery from an eating disorder because I know how difficult that is to manage but I think for so many people it's like let's just sit with that discomfort let's focus on all of those amazing things that recovery can bring and think about all the other excitement that is up ahead of us Mm -hmm. and actually try and just reframe things and when there is food that you maybe find a bit more challenging like actually unpack why you find that food really challenging Mm -hmm. and give yourself the space to really do that. Um, And I think as well, like there are some fantastic charities out there that do offer that early intervention, such as First Steps um, and um, Anorexia Bulimia Care as well. Mm -hmm. And they have befriending services available. So it's always worth kind of having a look and seeing whether there is any kind of support out there like that, that actually might really work for people. Yeah. Thank you so much for highlighting that because I think that can be, you know, so important for people when they're in that initial stage of recovery because it is such a daunting time and I think often you can feel quite lonely there. Something else I wanted to touch on which was kind of with regards to when you first go to the GP. So I think there's there's been quite a lot of research that's looked into sort of the stigmas that clinicians might have around eating disorders. So why why do you think to you that is so important that we change those stigmas and sort of, you know, relearn the way that eating disorders may present? 
Because I think if there is still stigma there, it stops people getting the support they need. Mm. And it means that we're making assumptions about people without really getting to understand the illness. Yeah. I still find it very frustrating that in more often than not, people with eating disorders are often left off the severe mental illness list, mm. which shows exactly the fact that we still don't view it as a mental illness. A lot of the time we still view it as a physical illness. Mm. And it's because of the stigma it means that people are not getting the support they need and I think as well within the stigma and within all of that it's like if we focused more on the person's mental state they'd have more chance of recovery and also less chance of relapsing further down the line but for some reason we are we are still fixated on the physical features and Mm. I think one of my frustrations, and I feel like I'm being so negative today, is um, that there are pockets of really, really good practice. Yeah. Like I know in South London, for example, they've got the Morsley Hospital, mm, which is yeah. hugely focused on early intervention. They have GP training, kind of all of that sort of stuff, but none of it's done at a foundational level, mm. which means that we need to have this proper structural change in order to actually get all of this stuff, all of this training, all of this understanding rolled out to counteract that stigma that is often kind of presented to people with eating disorders and it isn't just people with anorexia that face that stigma but it's actually people with orthorexia bulimia binge eating disorder and I know last year I did quite a bit of work with um, some binge eating disorder focus groups Mm. and the thing that kept coming up time and time again was they will go to their doctor about binge eating disorder and they'll go there talking about their mental health but the doctor will often refer them to Slimming World or refer them to Weight Watchers and it's like that shame and that judgment is just so, so, it's so there all the time. And because of the way the eating disorder mindset is, the stigma is fueling that competition and stopping yeah. people getting that support. Yeah. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the treatment process of binge eating disorder is, you know, giving somebody that structure and allowing them to have regular meals so that they don't then binge. So then to suggest something like Slimming World, which is all about restriction, especially, you know, Weight Watchers with if you've had this, you can't have that. That just is fueling that mindset. So it must just be awful for patients to go bearing everything and have the you know the trust in their doctor to open up and then to be turned away with that yeah no exactly so also you do quite a lot of work with children at school and university students and their parents so why is this something that's so important to you to you know get the message across to those groups of individuals yeah so I when I was growing up so I developed anorexia when I was about 12 13 years old and so the majority of my time at school, I was living with an eating disorder Mm. and no one knew about it. No one knew what the signs were. No one knew how to support me with it. And although I was very secretive about it, I think there was stuff that could have been done at the time to potentially prevent me escalating into ending up into hospital treatment. And I think for me, like the frustration is, I guess, there with the adults, like the lack of understanding, but wanting to empower people to have those conversations and doing it in such a way where they realize that you don't have to have extensive amounts of money spent on things. Mm. But it's about these are the simple ways to have a conversation. This is the kind of language that we can use in these places to actually get people to understand about eating disorders and more broadly as well, mental health and getting people to have more of that conversation. And I think particularly with young people, it's important for me because I spent a lot of my childhood not talking about how I was feeling. And for some people, like it might be an extreme that I didn't talk about anything. I got 
abused, was faced with all this trauma, didn't really know how to process it. And I ended up in a mental health hospital. And yes, that might be an extreme in some cases, but that is stuff that still happens every single day. And I think my thing, particularly given the year people have had with the pandemic, it's like there's a lot of people who are coasting along just feeling really unhappy, but not sure how to deal with it and not sure how to manage it, not sure how to talk about things. So in kind of equipping people to start to talk about things, for me, it's like the next step within that. And I think particularly with young people, you do see a lot of kind of disordered eating and it becomes so normal to them. They get their advice from like, Instagram and think that what they're seeing on Instagram about nutrition is 100% what they should be doing but it doesn't take into account actually the differences between people so just trying to get people to understand that and to try and reassess their own relationships with things I'm hoping that in the long run it will have a positive impact on people kind of moving forward. Well absolutely and I think I think that is so important because I do worry about the impact that's having because we often speak about that on this podcast in that when you're on social media you're scrolling so much and you're taking in so much information but you don't actually realize you are and I think it can have such a such a negative effect because you see all these images and think that's what I need to look like especially at such a young age so having those conversations to kind of guide people I guess of how to use those images and that information that they take in is you know that is really important yeah I think so and I think like just getting them yeah getting them to understand and take ownership of it as well Mm. like when I do when I work in schools I often talk about social media and the comparison factors and things like that but actually we can't be telling people what to do Mm. but it is about getting them to just yeah take that ownership and realize actually there are certain points in the day they probably shouldn't be looking at social media because it won't be good for them or there are certain accounts that when they look at it they're going to feel awful about themselves Mm. and I do believe the more we talk about that stuff and the more we get them to understand actually that's what's going to help them into the future and hopefully giving them like the skills to yeah the skills to really manage that moving forward I think I think it's really difficult with mental health because I think if we talk about it too much you kind of instill not necessarily a fear but maybe like young people start to overthink it and worry that they're getting a mental health issue or something like that so I think it's kind of like getting them to understand that they will sit on that spectrum of mental health Mm -hmm. and potentially with eating disorders there's a spectrum of eating disorders and disordered eating and healthy eating like getting them to assess where they're at on that and then how they can move from that kind of negative space they're at into that positive whilst realizing that most people throughout life will move their way up and down that spectrum And I think that's a really good point as well in regards to kind of being on that spectrum. And I guess that that can be something that is really confusing. I know personally it's confused me in that where do you want to sit on that spectrum? Because I think we've kind of gone from one extreme to the other in society or like you sit at one extreme of the or the other in that you're either super conscious about your health or we've got the opposite problem. And Mm -hmm. it's like you're saying, trying to understand where you want to sit on that. I think could be really confusing and it's it's drawing a fine line isn't it of am I doing this as a you know I'm raising my finger quote marks here like healthy behavior that's genuinely is healthy and promoting health or is this something that is seen as a healthy behavior but actually I'm doing this to be restrictive because I feel like I should be doing this yeah and I think that's the thing isn't it it's like learning to call yourself out on behaviors mm. and when you've had an eating disorder, it can feel really difficult to do that. But the more we push that and the more we reframe that, 
the more freedom we end up getting. And actually, the, the, the less rules we have in place around food, not only the happier we will end up being, but actually the more relaxed we'll be about the food and we'll be thinking about it so much less as well. But I think with young people, it is about kind of getting them to understand that. And I know recently, like I was thinking, I think it was last week, we got a pizza takeaway and we were talking about how in society, you're often told you could only have half a pizza or you should never finish a pizza or all of this stuff. And it's like, we've demonized food and we need to not, we firstly don't need, we just need to not do that. But actually, secondly, if we have demonized food, we need to help people to actually understand that it's something that we've put on the food and it's not actually factual about the food yeah that's so true but how you know I mean I'm just brainstorming here but how do you think we even begin to move away from that demonization because I think it's so strong now in that and I think it has become more so in COVID with you know the fear mongering of I've seen so many people saying, oh, you know, I've got to lose weight for the 21st of June or I'm going to have to start eating healthily. And it's almost so subtle that it is just a natural comment to say. And I do question how we will move away from that, because I think for some people, they don't even see it as an issue. It is just the way that they talk. Yeah, I think I think it's that's the thing. It has become totally normalised, like we normalize discussing kind of how little we're eating on a day-to-day basis or mm. even in the last week with the roadmap we've normalized the fact that loads of people are talking about how they want to lose weight but I think as individuals it's about the people who realize that it's dangerous actually taking a bit of a stand against it and I know for me it's like setting boundaries when I'm with my friends that so we don't talk about dieting we don't talk about bodies we focus on the other things and actually the more we open up that conversation to other things the less we will begin be thinking about food dieting and bodies and the less judgmental will also be when it comes to it so I think a big thing is just yeah just consciously making an effort as a starting point to not do that and maybe when stuff does start to open up actually consciously making that effort to say to yourself I'm not actually going to comment on anyone's weight I'm not going to comment on someone's body but I'm just going to kind of, yeah, just like ask them how they're doing and focus on so much other stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing that will help with shifting it is probably quite often when we're complementing weight loss, it's like in itself that is really, really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> but actually it's like we should be, yeah, we should be mindful that when we are doing that, are we complementing someone's weight loss or are we complementing an eating disorder are we complementing mm. the fact they're grieving it could be any number of things and that's why we just need to yeah just need to move away from it I think yeah because I think those comments can be such a driving force I mean just speaking anecdotally here but when I was ill with my eating disorder I remember people saying oh like you look so good and even my mum commented she saw you walking down the street and she thought you looked so good and you just I don't know I just question one why people actually think it's their business but also why is it necessary and like you say there could be so many other things going on it's just in society weight loss is seen as this great thing when actually there are so many underlying factors that we shouldn't be seeing as a great thing at all exactly and I think that's it isn't it we just need to we need to think about the language that we're using. And I've heard that so many times, like people being complimented when they've had an eating disorder. And I think it's the same, isn't it, with even things like when you look at social media and you're looking at maybe fitness influencers, Mm -hmm. like for all we know, they've got an underlying obsession with exercise or an underlying eating disorder. And for me, it's like we need to just, we just need to shift that mindset and that kind of fixation on bodies. And I guess just normalize as well, kind of like normal size bodies, like, 
just bodies that yeah are like different and diverse and something that I've been really conscious of kind of recently is actually making sure that when I'm on social media I'm not looking at bodies that are a certain size but I'm just looking at any size bodies Mm -hmm. and focusing more on actually what that individual brings whether it's Mm -hmm. someone who's inspiring me someone who's doing some campaigning that I find interesting and just yeah taking a bit of time around that I think is important yeah absolutely I think that's something I've personally been trying to do with myself as well is I think because of lockdown we become there's a lot less to focus on in day-to-day life and something I found was I did start to value myself because of what my body looked like I've actually started to think okay what's Hannah achieved today rather than what does her body look like today and something from what you just said before that I wanted to ask you and I thought it was really nice that you raised it was about CBT um, because obviously that is the treatment that's provided but I think it was really nice that you said it didn't work for you. So is there anything at the moment available for people that CBT doesn't work for? And, and if not, sort of what would you recommend to people if CBT isn't the thing for them? Sure, it's so interesting. I literally had a message from someone earlier talking about how they were doing CBT and it wasn't working. Oh, <laughs> and really? I was like, oh, and I was like, what else oh, have they no. offered you? And they were like, nothing. I was like, this is ridiculous. So I think the, the thing with CBT and some people really, really rate it. And the CBT that is specifically around eating disorders can be really, really helpful and it can really work. And it is about reframing your mindset. It's about challenging those fear factors, those fear foods, like unpacking that and really working yourself through that. But I think so often with eating disorder treatment, you cannot go straight into CBT because it doesn't work. Like I think so often we have to be talking about things and processing things and having that space to do that, getting to the root of the problem. And then we can start to unpack all of those kind of food rules that we have created for ourselves. I don't think there is much else out there at the moment. If I'm honest, I think quite often we get given CBT because it's an eight week course, then that's kind of it. But if someone who's listening to this is in that situation where it's not working for them and the CBT isn't helping, I would always say try and feed that back to your treatment team. Mm -hmm. Like try and just have a bit of a conversation with them around it and discuss with them whether there's something else that they can offer you instead and definitely trying to get that interim support. Um, The best bit of therapy that I've ever had um, was person-centered therapy, which I've kind of revisited a lot of the trauma that happened to me as a child, kind of began to really work through, yeah, work through things that were going on. But it also gave me the chance to just go over and over things in my head Mm -hmm. until I was ready to move forward. Mm -hmm. And I think quite often with eating disorders, we can get really stuck in a place. And the way to move forward with that kind of unsticking is to talk about it and to keep talking and to keep processing and to keep talking and it takes time but that's the stuff that will have the kind of more positive long-term impact. Yeah I think it's a difficult one because I think for some people CBT can work you know we talk about how eating disorders aren't about the food but ultimately they are because you're using food as a coping mechanism and so CBT will allow you to kind of develop new coping mechanisms so that when you do have a difficult time you don't need to turn to your eating disorder but equally like you say a lot of people do need to process things that have gone on and so just going straight into determining those coping mechanisms for some people might work but I think that's where we need personalized care because for some people they do have things that they need to talk about and then they can develop the coping mechanisms. Yep no exactly and I think that's the thing isn't it we're looking we quite often look for those plasters and those kind of quick fixes without actually realizing that 
if we're just going to do that, that actually in the long run, that's not going to help anyone. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask was, um, I, so I really like how honest you are on your Instagram. I think it's really refreshing to see your highs and your lows um, because as we know, recovery isn't a linear process and it does, you know, it does take a lot of effort. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, for, for people listening, when you have a difficult day, how do you manage those eating disorder thoughts that, you know, sometimes can be really overwhelming? Yeah, really good question. And I guess firstly, like it, it definitely gets easier. And now when I have a difficult day, I don't tend to have a huge amount of the unhealthy kind of eating kind of things going on in my head. But what I tend to do is I get, I always make sure I get out of bed. I always have a shower and I always get dressed mm. as like a starting point and clean my teeth. Um, and the reason I get dressed and have a shower is because when I'm mentally in quite a bad space, my hygiene goes completely out the window and right. I don't wash my hair. I don't brush my teeth. I don't get dressed. Um, and I think particularly in the pandemic, because we've been at home for so long, a lot of people have got really comfortable in wearing kind of joggers all the time and leggings. And I know that I do that from time to time, mm -hmm. but I always make sure at least I've got my top half dressed, um, mm -hmm. even if I've got joggers on, because I think it puts me in a better headspace yeah. and helps me to just not kind of hide away and like sink into myself. I then always make sure that I have a proper breakfast and although sometimes that might be harder, if particularly if it's a bad body image day, I will kind of challenge my thinking around that. And I have a wheat bag, so put that in the microwave, often kind of first thing in the morning on those difficult days, mm -hmm. so that I've constantly got it on my stomach throughout the day to try and alleviate some of the bloating. And then I'll make sure that I go outside for kind of 10, 15 minutes at least. And if I like feel like I want to, I will go for kind of like a gentle walk with maybe my other half or with a friend if there's someone close by. Mm. Um, but I think something that does help me on those days and something that isn't always that easy, but is setting myself like a few small tasks to do. So whether that's spending some time working on a workshop that I've got coming up or writing doing some writing things like that but also doing it in such a way where I know that actually I need to be kind to myself so at the moment I'm writing another book and I'm have been interviewing a couple of people for that mm. so actually on those difficult mental days I know that I've got all those interviews that I can listen back to and finish writing up and finish adding to my manuscript mm. but like I probably would find that okay to do whereas I probably wouldn't be able to sit down and write a whole other chapter so I think understanding where we are at with things and what helps us and I think as well for me like it's remembering that every single day that I challenge the eating even when it's trying to pull me back actually the more I challenge it the easier it will be in the long run to keep challenging it mm -hmm. And I know that I don't want to have a life dictated by food. And if I have one day where I let stuff slip and the eating disorder will jump right in at that point mm. and try and kind of pull me back in. So just I think for me, like just being really, really aware of that and really kind of yeah, challenging that and pushing that a little bit more. Um, like really, really helps actually. Yeah. Um, but I think for some people it, it's harder because maybe you're at the earlier point in your recovery. Maybe you're not yet ready to accept that you need that additional support. And when I was like that for a very long time, I'd often just watch stuff on Netflix, but kind of like getting myself out of bed and moving into the sitting room and just kind of watching stuff, being mindful that I'm not on my phone that much because I know then I'll do the comparison thing too much. 
and I think it is yeah work out what works work, work out what works for you and but what I always say is like on those days when things feel harder the eating disorder will do it it's like absolute best to try and pull you back in mm. but sometimes it is just like stop and just think like is it actually worth letting that happen and just asking yourself those kind of direct questions I think always really really helps because you can be like really honest or try and be really honest with yourself about it yeah and I think you're so right in that if you're if you do have a day where you're you know kind of feeling a little bit low I think it's it's a strange it sounds strange to say but your eating disorder kind of recognizes that and it's almost I mean, I know this isn't the same for everybody, but for me, when my eating disorder first started, it was like a friend. And then as it progressed, it became my worst enemy. And it's almost like if I have a bit of a down day, it starts being really friendly again. And I kind of have to say to myself, it's not actually your friend. It's tricking you again. And it's it's recognising, like you say, those signs and saying, no, we're not doing that again. And like you said, challenging yourself, if, if it's a really small thing, just doing something to make sure that y- you're the one that is, you know, setting the boundaries, not your eating disorder. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think so often we think that by having, I think so often we think that if we, because it gives us that short term value, then we need to keep striving for that value. Mm. But it is that reminder, like, actually, yes, that might work in the short term. But actually, it's not going to work in the long term. So holding on to all of that other stuff that actually is possible. And I think particularly when maybe you're changing weight or you're adding an extra fear food, it's like focusing on those motivations and those positives and all the reasons that you want to do it. And for some people, that might mean having like all of your motivations written down on a piece of paper that you can carry around with you. Mm -hmm. In my flat, I have a chalk wall and I have loads Mm -hmm. of kind of motivational stuff written on that and it's all very personal to me Mm. but actually it's just that reminder that actually do you know what this is why I'm doing what I'm doing yes it might feel uncomfortable but this is why I need to get to that space yeah absolutely I really like that I think it's nice if you can carry something with you um and that's just reminded me as well I saw on Instagram the other day that you have created kind of like a little handout for people um for spotting the signs of eating disorders so I wondered if you just wanted to kind of explain that little leaflet that you've made yeah so last year of eating disorder awareness week I launched a kind of like a one-stop guide to eating disorders Mm. um with a mental health trust in southwest London rather frustratingly the pandemic hit straight afterwards so we didn't really get to kind of roll it out as we wanted to Mm. um but it's something that I'm kind of looking to revisit at the moment with things opening up again but with the handbook it's basically like um for all frontline staff, but also for people who want to go and talk about an eating disorder. And it lies out kind of like the myths, the facts around eating disorders. It also has a little bit of advice on how to first have that conversation. So whether that's saying, I feel this, I felt like this for this amount of time, this is what I'm struggling with, this is what I need. And then having a kind of suggested response from the GP. Mm-hmm. And within the res- the kind of response from the GP, it's all around the language using. So encouraging them to be curious to ask more questions to not comment on a person's weight to take someone seriously to treat someone like a human and I think that's so that's kind of what I wanted off this kind of sheet was actually to help everyone understand that eating disorders aren't about weight and Mm. these are the things that really really help you to just start to have that conversation 
Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds like an incredible resource. So well done to you. I think that will be so useful for a lot of different people. So as the last question, I've been asking all the guests this. So as this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals struggling with eating disorders and reduce the stigma associated um, with eating disorders, would you be able to give your kind of top tip or best advice to if anyone's listening just to give them the motivation towards recovery? So my my top tip would be to think about what you want out of your future. So whether that's going on a holiday with your friends, like having croissants with your family on a Saturday morning, lying in bed while someone else makes you a cup of tea, ordering a takeaway because you can't bother to cook dinner. I would get them to think about that and write that down, think about what that might look like and then compare it to how a future might look like if you still let the calories and the eating disorder kind of control your every day and every... I really like that. I think it's really nice to give yourself kind of a goal to work towards rather than just one day I'll recover. What will recovery actually look like for me? So thank you for sharing that. That's okay. And I think as well, just to add on that, I guess like Mm. for all of us, recovery will mean something totally different. Absolutely. And for some people that will mean kind of total freedom. For other people, it will mean kind of their stress around the food. But I think it's important to identify what you think that should look like for you and how you want that to be portrayed. And I always think like if you're struggling to work that out for yourself, like look and see what other people are, like look and see how other people have recovered and got to that space. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom today. And I just wanted to ask before you go, if people have been listening and they're inspired by what you've been talking about, where can they find you and how can they get involved with your campaigns? So my main campaign, Dump the Scales, um, if you just type into Google, Dump the Scales, and it's on the change.org website. And then social media wise, it's probably the other good place to look. Um, So my Instagram is just HopeVirgo underscore. And on Twitter, I'm just HopeVirgo. So yeah, like, do feel free to kind of check them out, like get in touch if anything's come up for you. And I would just say, like, if anything has really resonated with you today, like do use this as a bit of an opportunity to start having those conversations with your friends, with your family, but also to kind of reassessing what maybe your relationship with food is like and Mm. how you can kind of get to that space. Well, thank you, Hope. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. You too. Thank you. I feel really lucky to have been able to have that conversation with Hope. I've been a massive fan of her work for a while, so to be able to sit down and ask her what she does and why she does within eating disorders was really special to me. Next week, we'll be joined by Jodie Yates, who is an artist, and she paints beautiful, incredibly colourful, abstract paintings of female bodies. So Jodie will be joining us to talk about body acceptance as well as intersexual feminism, which is something that I didn't know much about, and I feel like I really understand now. Everyone says art is subjective. Like, Mm. you can look at a Van Gogh painting and one person be like, oh, that's amazing. Another Mm. person be like, I don't get it. I don't like (laughs) it. And, like, that's how you should sort of view yourself in a way. Just accepting that not everyone's going to like you. Your body type maybe is not everyone's cup of tea, but you will always be someone's cup of tea and you should definitely always be your own cup of tea. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. 
eating disorders or crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye!